Please take your seats, and if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Nahum, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as you'll say it in heaven. We're in Nahum chapter 1 this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're in the middle of the Heart of God series this summer. We do topical series as a whole in the summer. We normally go through the Bible chapter by chapter, but in the summer with so many people away and so forth, we do more topical series, and we're going through the existence and attributes of God. And uh, you'll, we're approaching the end of that series this, this morning. We've got two more sermons today and next week, and we're this morning on the wrath of God, and you'll find our passage here in Nahum 1. With the Word of God open, please listen carefully. This is the Word of God, and with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elchosh. The Lord is jealous and avenging. Sorry, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him, the earth and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. And I have a friend actually back in Savannah whose wife was taken by early-onset Alzheimer's disease probably about 10 years ago or so now. She was an incredibly competent woman. She ran a large church in the town, and uh, over the course of her 50s, the first thing they noticed was she began to forget details. She never forgot details. She had a mind like a trap. But the straw that broke the camel's back that impelled them to seek medical attention came one day when she was driving down a uh, quiet street in a neighborhood, and she crashed headlong into an oncoming SUV. And that was shocking, not the kind of thing you normally do when you're driving. She wasn't distracted. She just didn't see the car coming. So they did their round of the various specialties, and eventually they came to a geriatric psychiatrist who diagnosed Alzheimer's disease. And my good friend said to the psychiatrist, but I don't understand it because my wife's vision's been tested. She can see perfectly well. And he said, yes, the problem with Alzheimer's disease is people drive only seeing half the picture. And to illustrate that, he opened up a magazine, a car magazine, and the centerfold in the magazine was a, a, a car safety advertisement. And it was 
two sides of, of, of a large picture, and it was two sides of the same picture. On the right-hand side of the page, there was a child, a seven-year-old boy, chasing a bouncing ball across the footpath out onto the road. On the other side of the page, across from the centerfold, there was a luxury SUV speeding down the road, the same road, toward the child. And he asked the lady, what do you see? And she said, oh, it's a child having fun. And he goes, what about over here? Oh, she says, that's a nice car. It's a Mercedes. He said, you see, she can't put the two pictures together. She saw the child and saw the Mercedes and didn't see the impending accident. She drives seeing only half of the picture. And I thought of that this week when I was thinking about the modern church, especially in America, but really throughout the West. We live seeing only half the picture when it comes to God. We live seeing only His love, His mercy, His compassion. But the American church more and more doesn't know what to do with His wrath and His jealousy and His justice, and we're terribly confused, and it doesn't make sense. And the thing is, when you worship seeing only half the picture of God, half a God tends to leave you with only half a gospel, which is another problem in the American church. We have a gospel that more and more is about living your best life now. It's about being happy in this life, not being holy in this life and the next. It's about being safe now. It's not about being saved forever. It's about being a nice citizen in this world, but it doesn't have any power to make you, to give you a new, make you a new creature before God and before the world. I'm reminded of Niebuhr's famous observation about the liberal church when he said, liberalism essentially is the idea that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the administration of a Christ without a cross. And if you don't understand the wrath of God, you'll never fully understand the love of God and the gospel You'll never know what salvation is, because when you hear the word salvation, it begs a question, saved from what? Saved from what? And most American churches will say, well, we're saved from our sins. No, our problem is much worse than that. You don't just need to be saved from your sins. You need to be saved from God's reaction to your sins, which is described in His wrath and in His curse. That's what we're offering this morning, salvation from God, salvation by God, and salvation for God. It's like what Al Mohler says in this glorious quote of his. He said, God's love has lost its meaning in the Christian imagination because it's lost its corollary, the flip side of the coin, which is God's wrath. If we begin with God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, what's the problem? From what does the unbeliever need to be saved? That's the question. We have forgotten that people are condemned eternally, not primarily because they did not accept Christ, but because God did not, indeed could not, if He remained just, accept them. That's your final, that's your, that's your problem this morning. It's not that you haven't accepted Christ. That's part of the problem. Your real problem is that outside of Christ, God cannot accept you. 
because of your sin and because of His righteous, just, and wrathful reaction to your sin. Details matter when you're dealing with immensities and eternities and infinities. If you have half a God and half a gospel, there's very little difference between half a God and half a gospel and no God and no gospel forever. So, I want us to think carefully this morning about the flip side of God's love, which is His wrath. We're going to turn in Nahum and look at this first chapter this morning. Now, Nahum is a prophet. He preached sometime in the seventh century B.C. He prophesied about Nineveh. Boys and girls, you can remember that. Nahum N and Nineveh N, two Ns. He prophesied against Nineveh, which was the capital city of the Assyrians, who were the enemies of the Old Testament, the people of God. Uh, Modern-day Iraq and Iran and extended towards Turkey and down towards Egypt in their heyday. They would eventually fall in 612 B.C. when Babylon rose up. Babylon was like a nation-state within Assyria. It'd be like Texas rising up and conquering America. <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful thought that would be. Um, but Babylon rose up and conquered Assyria, and they were even worse maybe than Assyria was in the first place. But Nahum writes prophesying the downfall of Assyria when they were at their height and their heyday. If you look at verse 12, Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. So Nahum preached and prophesied earlier in the 7th century before the cracks began to appear in the Assyrian regime. regime. Now, our topic this morning is the wrath of God. What do we learn in this chapter about the wrath of God? And there are a number of things, and they all begin with P. First of all, God's wrath represents His perfect response to our sin. If you take nothing away from the sermon this morning, take this away from the sermon. Nahum feels no need to apologize for the wrath of God. It's not like, you know, the red-headed stepchild you kind of hide in the corner. He places the wrath of God all over this passage, but he does so side by side with declarations of the goodness and mercy of God. Did you see that? Look at verse 2 and verse 3. The Lord is jealous and avenging. So, I keep on quoting the New American Standard. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty the goodness of God, the patience of God, the wrath of God side by side. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Now, many people today can't get their heads around that. In their mind, God must be either loving or judgmental, or judgmental or loving, but He can't be both. But Nahum sees no contradiction between love and wrath between goodness and severity. We, we read that in Psalm 136 this morning. Part of the, the love of God is to His willingness to destroy the enemies of the people of God, who are the enemies of God Himself. We should see no contradiction between the goodness and the severity of God. You remember, Jesus knew no such embarrassment. He speaks, seen, warns those of 
those children and adults who carelessly throw around curses on human beings, calling one fool and the other an empty-headed idiot. And Jesus says, you who do that are in danger of hell fire. He speaks of the day when He will judge people who said, Lord, Lord, with their lips, but they didn't live, Lord, Lord, in their lives. And He will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He describes a great white throne of judgment. On His right are the sheep, on His left are the goats. And He says, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He warns those playing with sexual sin, pluck out your right eye, cut off your right hand, for it's better to enter heaven maimed than to enter hellfire whole. When the disaster happened, when the Tower of Siloam fell, and um, Herod butchered some Galileans in the midst of their religious worship. And the nice girl from Fox News asked Jesus for his opinion. And if he was here today, and the girl from Fox News said, what, what about the Ocean Gate situation? What's your response to that? Jesus would not be very politically correct. He would say, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The one that God sent to save us from the wrath of God is not at all backward in warning us about the wrath of God. So, as part of His perfections, um, the wrath of God. It's important to remember, though, right, when we speak about the wrath of God, you've got to qualify it. God is love all the way down to the core of His being, but God is not wrath right? He's never described in the Bible as wrathful, as if God is wrath, right? He's never described that way. Properly speaking, wrath is not one of His attributes. What is God? Our catechism says God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. doesn't mention wrath in that list. Justice is really God's, or wrath is really God's justice on fire with holy zeal. God is fiercely just. The Bible itself speaks about God's wrath as His strange work. His love and His wrath are not equivalent. The salvation of His people fills God with joy, but the destruction of the wicked affords Him no such pleasure. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But when one soul is saved, heaven is filled with joy. So, His wrath and His love are not equivalent. He's slow to anger. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, um, quotes a lady, Becky Pippert, who's heretofore unknown to me, but it's a helpful quote. She, she's thinking about how love and wrath go together like water and wet. Think how we feel, she says, when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but His settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race whom He loves 
with his whole being. Later, he quotes Miroslav Wolf, and I referenced this in a previous sermon, but didn't have the quote. But remember, Wolf was talking, he was, Wolf was a, a pastor in Serbia uh, during the Serb and Croat difficulties in former Yugoslavia. And he says this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis, Wolf says, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But, he says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocents, it will invariably die, along with all the other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. In other words, it's very easy for you Americans to believe that God loves everybody and He's never angry at all, and that we should love our enemies just because, and we shouldn't take vengeance because vengeance is always wrong. So that's easy to believe in suburbs of America with your nice picket fences and your manicured lawns. But when you go back to your home or your hut in Rwanda or your home in Yugoslavia and you find your wife butchered and your daughters raped and your sons enslaved, the only thing that will keep you sane, the only doctrine that will stop you unraveling in a, in a petty, selfish desire for vengeance is the sure and certain knowledge that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. This pleasant distraction of the liberal mind that God is only love will not do in those days. We need a God who's bigger than that and a God who's better than that. A God whose love and His wrath are both sides of the same coin. And it's because God loves so deeply that He expresses His love in a fiercely fear-minded determination to protect all that He cherishes and to punish those who threaten it. That's the first thing this morning, that the wrath of God is His perfect response to our sins. Moving on, though, I want you to see that the wrath of God is also God's personal response to our sins. Notice here in this passage that God is jealous and avenging. He is avenging and wrathful. He does take vengeance on His enemies. He does rebuke the sea and make it dry. He makes the mountains quake. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning heat of His anger? He is the one who pursues the wicked into darkness. He's active in His wrath. That's important to realize because Again, the liberals often like to distance God from wrath. It's kind of like they will say wrath is just the Bible's way of describing that God has set the universe up in such a way that if you fool around, you'll find out. That if you play stupid games, you'll win stupid prizes. So if you climb a cliff and forget the law of gravity, expect the long fall, which is fun were it not for the sudden stop. If you use pornography, don't surprise, be surprised if you lose the joy of the marriage bed. If you're a gossip, don't surprise, be surprised if you find out nobody trusts you or likes you at the end of your life. 
Um, if you use cocaine and you stimulate your brain with that surging dopamine rush, don't be surprised if you're left not enjoying the simple pleasures of life like a walk on a sunny day, right? And that's all true, right? And, and that's what the liberals say. God, the Bible speaks of God's wrath. What it really means is, you know, we, just ex- we experience the consequences of our actions while God's in heaven kind of biting his fingernails and feeling very sad that we are being so stupid. But notice, there is no, not an inch of separation in Nahum's writings between the consequences of sin and the God who sends those consequences. There's a sowing and reaping logic to life, but it's a sowing and reaping logic that God has written in, and it comes from His jealousy, verse 2. The Lord is jealous. Now, quickly here, you know, we often think, right, that jealousy is a bad thing. And Packer, in his wonderful book, Knowing God, he reminds us that actually there are two types of jealousy. One is a vice, the other is not. Packer says, vicious jealousy is an expression of the attitude, I want what you have got, and I hate you because I haven't got it. It's an infantile resentment springing from unmortified covetousness, and it's rooted in pride, which is the taproot of our fallen nature. But he says there's another sort of jealousy, a zeal to protect a love relationship or to avenge it when it's broken. And it appears not as the blind reaction of a wounded pride, but as the fruit of marital affection. This sort of jealousy is a positive virtue, for it shows a grasp of the true meaning of the husband-wife relationship together with a proper zeal to keep it intact. God is jealous. He's jealous for His Son's glory, and He's zealous also for His Son's bride, that we, the church, are safe, that we're secure, and that we do not let His Son's love go unrequited. God is jealous. Joe Beakey, in his wonderful Reformed Systematic Theology, says this, God's wrath is an aspect of His jealousy, which is not an eruption of an unstable passion, but His infinite, eternal zeal for the glory of His name, particularly exercised in establishing the kingdom of His Son. This helps us to understand, insofar as we can understand, that God's wrath does not disturb or change Him, for His anger springs from His zealous love for His Son. Nothing is more fundamental in God than this truth. The Father loveth His Son. Nothing will stop Him from honoring His Son, and therefore God's wrath is clothed with sovereign joy. Right? So, Lunchtime today, I'm sitting out in our porch enjoying some salad with friends, and we're sitting around the table, and Eliza's out playing, my nine-year-old playing in the yard, and two vicious Alsatians, German shepherds, come bounding across the yard to attack her. And I jump up, and the feelings I have inside are angry feelings, and I run out to kill those dogs or to stop them molesting Eliza. Now, what's driving me there is actually my love for my daughter. I love her. If I were to be indifferent and go, well, I've got six children, you know, easy come, easy go. 
Um, that would not be a recommendation of me as a father. But what's actually driving me is my joy in my daughter's beauty, that she's got all four limbs. They're still attached to her body. I love her. I delight in her. I want to protect her. And it's the delight I have in my daughter that is fueling my anger against my, those dogs. And therefore, my anger is a beautiful thing. It may look bad on the outside for the dogs and hopefully feel bad for them, but at the center, it's a zealous, joyful gladness desiring to protect my daughter. That's what's motivating it, and that's, that's the heart of God's anger. It's a beautiful thing that actually deserves worship and not revulsion in the hearts of the angels in heaven and us on earth. Which leads me to my third point, is that God's anger is, it is um, perfect and it's personal, but it's also purposeful and principled. Um, Dave Paulson says, God is fiercely fair-minded. In reference to God, wrath and fury don't describe a mere irritable mood or a momentary tantrum. They describe God's wholehearted decision to destroy things He finds utterly despicable, right? Now, the key point here is, right, we often think of anger as a passion. You might know an angry man. Maybe your father was an angry man, and he was always scowling, hair trigger. You were kind of walking on eggshells in the house. That is not God. God's anger does not um, reside at the level of passions. Properly speaking, God doesn't have passions. Augustine says, a passion is a commotion of the mind contrary to reason caused by foolishness or misery. Such passion could never exist in God. Yet God's passionless anger does not make Him inhuman, for true human righteousness in the image of God involves freedom from that kind of foolish passion that control us, right? Um, so, we shouldn't think of like God looking down on the world, Satan, and the sins of human beings, and it kind of ruining His day. That doesn't happen. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. He says, if God's infinite hatred against sin included pain and grief over each sin, then the countless sins committed by demons and human beings would cause God to suffer infinite pain every day and would make Him the most miserable of all beings, whereas in truth God is perfectly happy, for He sovereignly uses the evil for His own glory, for even the wrath of man shall praise Him. Or John Calvin says, certainly God is not sorrowful or sad, but remains ever like Himself in His celestial and happy repose. Yet the Spirit reveals how great is God's hatred and detestation of sin. So it's a purposeful, principled reaction against human wickedness. And it lives at the, at the level of His will. It's a decision he makes, and he makes it with all of his being. Just because it's not out of control the way our anger is doesn't mean it's not to be feared, as we'll see in a second. It's a decision God makes to destroy evil in all its forms, and he makes it with all of his being, infinity, eternality, and unchangeability, all mixed together, unleashed in a decision to destroy evil that does not interrupt God's sovereign, 
happy, blessedness, and joy. I'm greatly indebted to Dr. Johnson, his book on, on, on the blessedness of God, just published by Reformation Heritage, really gets to the heart of that, the blessedness of God, that God is not angry, he's not, His days aren't ruined, He's not victimized by His creatures. He is blessed, and yet His decision to deal furiously with the wicked is real and to be feared. He has to deal with it. We are guilty. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, verse 3. We're guilty. We've broken His law. We've been selfish. We want a world where we are in the center and everything else is on the edge, where we deal with God as if He's unimportant, the Son of God as if He's unimportant. And, And the Father will not let you do that. It's wrong. And the Son won't let you deal with the Father as inconsequential. And the Father and the Son won't let you outrage the Spirit by treating Him as if He was inconsequential. And He won't let you treat other human beings as inconsequential, as if you were more important than them, and they existed to serve you, when actually you exist to serve them, and they exist to serve you. And that's the community God designed. And selfishness, which is the DNA of sin, is wrong. How do, you, how do you feel about selfish people? Do you like selfish people? Do you like being around selfish people? No, you don't. The only selfish person you love is the one you look at in the morning when you brush your teeth in the mirror. Because your selfishness always sounds classy in your ears. We always have a reason for it. But God knows the truth that selfishness is always cheap and tawdry and to be despised, and to be destroyed. And so, God can't just stand there and say nothing and do nothing when something must be said and something must be done. Teaching the children this week about um, Adam and Eve in the garden. That's what Adam did, you remember. He stood there and said nothing and did nothing when evil was whispering in Eve's ear. And what ought he have done? He asked one of the children. I think what Sammy said, he should, Adam should have killed the snake. Exactly. But he didn't. He did nothing and said nothing. And God is not like Adam. God will speak, and He will act, because He is just, fiercely fair-minded. And it's like my friend, the musician, his mum couldn't get out of bed in the mornings. And so, um, what she would do at the end of the day, when she would call him and he wouldn't go out of bed, and it would really drive uh, him, her crazy, she would go down to the piano, and she would... And, and he'd come down the stairs, angry, and go... <laughs> drive him nuts. He couldn't leave the scale unpunished, unfinished. And God's wrath, God's justice is a declaration that He will not leave evil unchallenged. Evil out there, but also evil in here. Your evil and my evil, it's got to be answered. It's got to be finished. The scale has got to be closed. God will not leave it undealt with. It's principled it's purposeful. 
And lastly, it's fearful, it's powerful. We read this passage. It's a terrifying thing, the wrath of God. Think about it. Think about being pursued. That last line, he will pursue his enemies into darkness. This universe-creating, universe-destroying God chasing you. Think of those five souls in that propane tank diving down to the Titanic, and that awful moment when it collapsed in, and the ocean water at 6,000 pounds per square inch pursued them into nothing. How terrifying in the darkness of the deep, of the depths, and the water coming in. Only lasted a millisecond. But they'd rather relive that millisecond again and again in an endless loop of Groundhog Day than to endure the God of heaven pursuing them into the darkness, surrounded by His angry presence, realizing they only have themselves to blame, and God principally, purposefully, personally, powerfully pursuing them. That's the wrath of God. I want, to, I want you to think about that this morning. God takes our sin personally. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, think about that. You are His creature. He is your creator. He has given you the gift of life. Everything you have in your life is a gift of His. And, and, and will you live your life making an enemy of your creator? Children here baptized into the, into the membership of the church and all of the things are yours. The Bible is yours. The church is yours. Christ is yours. The promises of God are yours. The sacraments are yours. The fellowship of God's people are yours. Truth is yours. The adoption papers of God Himself have been put on your lap. They're all yours. What a terrible thing to walk away from them and to not improve them, not to embrace Jesus as your Savior, to trample Him instead under your foot as He stands at the door and says, no, don't leave. Come to me. Wouldn't you rather have me as your friend than your enemy? And yet some of you, you're ignoring Him. You're walking out past Him, walking over Him, trampling Him under your foot. And Hebrews says, you're outraging the Holy Spirit of grace. And Jesus says, oh, wouldn't you rather have me as your friend? Come to me. Put your trust in me. Turn from your sins. Follow me. Wouldn't you rather have me as your friend than your enemies? Wouldn't you look at, look at the cross and see what the wrath of God does to a person? Not all the vials of judgments that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence poured against the rebellious devils, nor the groans of the wicked damned, give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon His Son. Jesus says, look at me on the cross. Look at the lengths I went to save you from the wrath of God. God dealt with me then no longer as son, but as sin. And He did that so that He might deal with you no longer as sin, but as sons and daughters. Jesus says, what madness 
to forsake the one and embrace the other. Do you love your sins so much that you would embrace them rather than bow the knee and kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little? Oh, Jesus says, take refuge in the Son, for there's no refuge from him, only refuge in him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Oh, the difference, the lengths that Christ went to to rescue us from the wrath of God. It's no light matter. Think about it. Meditate upon it. Christian, those of you who are, who are turning from Jesus and embracing known sins, have you not heard the word, if you live according to the flesh, you will die? No, come, turn. Call upon the strength of the Holy Spirit to give you strength to be cleansed from your sins and to say no to them and yes to Christ and live as God's friends and not as His enemies. Oh, the great love of God that gone to such cost to rescue us from His wrath and take sinners and make them into sons by taking His Son and making Him into sin upon the cross. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word, its truth, and its power. We come this morning and ask You, Lord, that You would work in our hearts this morning and give us faith to believe in these promises that are so vast and rich and free. In Christ's name, amen.